Welcome to Baron Talks, where my guest today is Dr. Robert Spiel. Dr. Spiel is a faculty member here at Penn State Baron, Associate Professor of Political Science and Chair of the Political Science Program. I'm Dr. Ralph Ford, Chancellor of Penn State Baron, but welcome here, Rob. Thank you, Chancellor Ford. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm going to take a moment and read uh, a little bit about your very impressive bio. Uh, you hold a Ph.D. and master's degree in government from Cornell University, a bachelor's degree in political science and theology from the University of Pennsylvania. Your analyses, uh, you're called on quite a bit to be a political uh, commentator, but just this year you've been featured on the BBC, Voice of America, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, in the past, uh, many other, I know New York Times and others, have called on you uh, for your expertise uh, beyond that, though, you are a really dedicated faculty member and teacher. You have received the Penn State Baron Council of Fellows Award for Excellence in Teaching and the Penn State University-wide George Etherton Teaching Award. I'll add my own commentary. You are a very popular faculty member among our students, and you have inspired many of our graduates to go pursue uh, careers in law and politics. So, uh, again, uh, that's an impressive background, and we appreciate you joining us. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I, you're, you're swelling my ego here, but thank you. <laughs> uh, well, well-deserved. Why don't you, you know, I like to always start out and uh, hear a little bit about your, what's your path to Barron? How did you end up here in political science, and what brought you here? Well, political science, I grew up in a family where uh, where everyone was discussing politics when I was a child and, and debating politics, so... I was interested in politics when I did, you know, start my undergraduate years at University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Uh, I got involved a lot in local politics there. And when I was involved in local politics, I decided I would rather teach and talk about politics than practice politics. And as far as how I ended up at Penn State Barron, one of your predecessors was kind enough to offer me a job here in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I accepted, and I've been here ever since. Yeah, it's a great place. Like you, I came, and I found a home, and I stayed so, you know, you made a really good point. It's one thing to be involved. It's interesting to be able to be in your position and analyze what's going on as well and study uh, politics. But how would you describe the level of uh, political engagement among our students currently? Uh, right now, very high. I, I usually, in election years, I often ask students to raise their hands if they've voted on a particular day or will be voting by the end of the day. Uh, in a lot of local elections, when only local offices are on the ballot, I often get voter turnout, even among political science students, of 10% or less, which is disappointing. Uh, but when I asked this year, almost every student raised his or her hand. It, it seemed turnout was near 100%. So students were really paying attention this year. And I'd say even preceding this year, in the last uh, two, three years, I have seen student organizations setting up outside of the student union, both Democrat and Republican, I see forums going on that I typically didn't see in the past. That's true, yeah. Our, our college Democrats and college Republicans organizations on campus, both of which I advise, uh, have been very active at, at sponsoring debates and forums. We also have a, uh, a Barron Political Society, which, which tends to sponsor nonpartisan debates. And, yeah, uh, uh, activities among those groups have been thriving the past few years. Do you ever have joint meetings where, since you're advisor for both the Democrats and Republicans, you bring them together? Yeah, uh, yeah. The Barron Political Society tends to do that. They tend to they tend to stage the debates where the Democrats and Republicans debate each other. They had an online debate actually 
uh, last month, which I thought went very well. Uh, who did did they have uh, local candidates? I assume. Yeah, not not at that debate, but uh, both groups had local candidates uh, speak to them on Zoom at their routine meetings. A lot of the local uh, people running for office uh, visited one of the online meetings. Well, for reference for our listening audience, we're recording this today on November 12th. Joe Biden has been projected as the winner of the presidential election with a clear majority in the Electoral College, at least uh, according to uh, the major news outlets. Uh, but the results have not been certified, which is not unusual. That's the way that it works. Uh, but President Trump has not conceded. So my question for you is, how do you expect the transition and this transfer of power to play out? Uh, at the time we're speaking, we're, we're waiting to see. I mean, my expectation is, is that Donald Trump will step down at noon on January 20th next year, which is required by the Constitution. Uh, it's not clear how cooperative he is going to be with the Biden uh, incoming administration at the same time. Uh, and it strikes me, this has not happened in a long time if the Trump uh, administration does not cooperate with Biden. The last time a an outgoing and incoming president seemed to have such animosity was way back in 1952 when Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower didn't like each other. Yeah. That were said during the campaign and would not speak to each other, I believe the story goes, at their inauguration. So we may have something even worse than that in January. But this idea of transition of power, it's more a practice. It's not required by the Constitution or by law that uh, the Biden team is given access, but it is the practice, or is it, or is it a requirement? Uh, as far as talk, as, as far as as far as Donald Trump himself getting involved directly, no, there's nothing required. Uh, but there is a law saying that that the General Services Administration has to provide office space and resources to an incoming administration to uh, you know provide the transition as they try to hire staff people. And so far, the head of the General Services Administration who is supposed to, you know, announce that someone seems to be the presumed winner of the election has declined to do so at the instructions of the Trump administration at the time we're talking. Uh, so the Biden, the Biden team, the Biden campaign team still has to use its private resources and campaign money uh, to try to begin staffing for the next administration at this point. Well, I will say as of even today, it's a fluid situation. So I just in terms of the, the political pressure on uh, on the Trump administration, I noticed Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, just came out and said it's time. Uh, I don't know the exact statement. And Carl Rove even wrote a something in the uh, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, do you think any of this plays in, or are they just not going to listen to other Republicans? I, I think pressure is building. I mean, yeah, you get more and more Republicans, although maybe from the establishment part of the party, who are calling on – uh, the Trump administration to acknowledge that Biden's going to be the next president and begin a transition. Many of them are saying it's important for national security purposes uh, for the Biden team to be up to date on a lot of things going on around the world. Uh, my guess is this pressure starts to build, even if the president himself doesn't come out and say he's lost the election, uh, that you will get people in the administration who begin to work with uh, Biden team members to begin that transition process. And to be fair, are to to put some context, when we had the issue with the uh, 2000 election with Gore and Bush, the transition there was delayed. That is correct. I mean, there was some uh, there was a little bit. Uh, the Clinton administration did work with the Bush team a little bit before a final Supreme Court decision was made. 
but the Bush team did not have a sort of the full transition process until the Supreme Court made its decision in, in mid-December, at which point uh, Gore conceded and things proceeded as normal. So that is correct. So let's just go back to looking at the numbers. As of this morning, Associated Press, Biden holds 290 votes in the Electoral College, 214 going to Trump. Uh, Biden also leads in the popular vote with more than 74 million votes. Uh, that number may even be out of date. I've heard estimates that he'll break 80 million. So this is the most ever easily for a presidential candidate in either party, but it's still only, you know, over just over 50 percent of the total. Do you think that this gives Joe Biden a mandate? What does this mean, this result, in terms of the, the infamous mandate to govern? Yeah, I think his mandates go. Joe Biden has as much of a mandate as any previous president who won a majority of the national popular vote and, and a majority of electoral votes. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the, the popular vote totals continue to rise as California continues to count its votes. And the last I saw at the time we're talking was around 77, 78 million for Biden. He may approach that 80 million. It looks like the final national to, uh, vote results are going to be something like 51 percent for Biden, 48 percent for Trump. Uh, you know, I mean, that's that's a majority. That's the majority that many previous presidents have had, and a, a clear majority of Americans, both in the popular vote and the Electoral College, uh, said they want Biden as the next president, and that's about as strong a mandate as you can get uh, as a presidential candidate. Okay. Well, you know, now if you look at it from the other side, you know, many viewed this election as a referendum on Trump, and it really is, no matter who the president is, they're trying to get their second term, right, and his vision for America uh, by all means, it appears he has lost. But he did expand his base. He got more than 7 million more, at least 7 million more votes than he did in 2016. Uh, he did well with Latino voters uh, in Florida, in Texas. Uh, how did he appeal to them, and what, what does this mean? Yeah, I, I, that's correct. I mean, we do have to be careful. Some of the media coverage of this has been a little just a little bit misleading, perhaps. Uh, Joe Biden did as well or better than Hillary Clinton in Latino American areas in other parts of the United States, like the American Southwest, California, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado. Joe Biden did uh, as well as Hillary Clinton or better and, and won about two thirds of the Latino American and Latino American vote nationwide. But in, in the Miami area of Florida and in South Texas, uh, vote totals indicate that Donald Trump did do better than he did four years ago. Uh, in the Miami area, my guess is is that it's a very heavily Cuban-American area, and my guess is that uh, Trump successfully portrayed the Democrats as being sympathetic to socialist ideas, which are very unpopular with Cuban-Americans. Uh, South Texas along the Mexican border is traditionally a fairly conservative area, even though it uh, has a high percentage of Latino and Latino-Americans. And my guess is that some people in those areas actually, for whatever reason, may have liked Trump's border policies. Uh, and, and therefore may have supported him more than they did four years ago. But uh, that those were kind of aberrations among the Latino and Latino-American populations nationwide. You know, personally, I find, find a, a, it, it's interesting to hear the, the discussion on so-and-so got more votes, and they both did, and the reality is, the good news is, we just had way more people turn out than we ever have. And they both ended up with more votes than when you look at the previous election. And in the end, I think you've correctly pointed out, it's similar to previous presidents who won with 51, 52 percent. 
Yeah, I mean, voter turnout in this election was pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, by the time all the votes are counted, many political analysts think we're going to have about a two-thirds voter turnout among eligible voters. Uh, that will be the highest we've had in the United States in over 100 years. It may even be the highest in history. We actually do not really know 19th century turnout very well because there was so much fraud. There was a lot of ballot box stuffing and issues like that. Uh, so certainly the turnout this year was the highest in, in over 100 years, uh, which is very impressive on the part of both candidates. Have you, is, you know, the, so the central question is, is, is there any evidence out there right now of fraud that we know of? I mean, is there any credible evidence at the time we're speaking, no. I mean, there were occasionally in, in some counties and some states across the United States, there were some election officials who may have made an incompetent decision that affected a very tiny number of votes. Uh, we get that in every election. Uh, in 2000, uh, those tiny mistakes actually blew up and became the you know result of a national uh, or resulted in a national crisis. Uh, but there's no state right now that's anywhere close to how close Florida was in 2000. I mean, uh, the closest states at the time we're talking, uh, Joe Biden is leading by over 10,000 votes in both Arizona and Georgia, and he doesn't even need their electoral votes anyway to have the majority. Uh, so while there may have been some minor mistakes around the country by election officials, uh, there is no evidence whatsoever at the time we're talking of any widespread fraud or anything that would potentially change the outcome of this election. Yeah, and the, uh, if, you know, the hope or the thought of a recount, uh, when you look at recounts, uh, you can do them, but do they ever change the result in any significant way? I mean, do you see swings of 10,000 votes when they recount? No, I have never, I've never seen that. I think the Associated Press has reported on that, that any recounts that have changed the outcome of a significant election in the past decade or two, uh, the final the final tally before the recount was always of a margin under a thousand votes. You know, in Florida, the, the dispute was about a margin of 537 votes. There have been a couple congressional elections in the past decade where recount changed the outcome, but uh, that was when the margins between the two candidates were maybe 500 or 300 votes. Nothing like a margin of over 10,000 votes has, has changed in recent history due to a recount. And the reality is, Pennsylvania is key and that's that's not likely to change with 50,000 plus vote differential and growing as the results come in. I mean, that is just the reality of the situation. Yeah, that is correct. I mean, I mean the chances of a recount changing anything in Pennsylvania are near zero. Yeah. So, I want to switch over and let's just, you know, we need we need a lesson from uh Professor Spiel on electoral college. And I'm going to make the assumption, but not everybody probably knows. We, you know, we don't directly elect our president. We do so through this thing known as the Electoral College. It was created in the 1780s, and it's part of our Constitution in the 12th Amendment. So can you give us a rundown of how the system works and why do we have it? Well, the original system as created by the people who wrote the Constitution uh, was, was created because they didn't trust average voters. I mean, they thought... Average voters were foolish, weren't, weren't well-educated, weren't well-read. They referred to it as the passions of the people, that people might make foolish decisions. So the original idea was that voters might vote for their state legislatures, and then state legislatures would choose a set of electors from that state. And those electors, it was assumed would be wise men of independent judgment, you know, the people like Ben Franklin and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson of the day. And those electors, using their wise judgment, would meet in state capitals and then determine who would be a good president. Uh, that is not at all the way the Electoral College works today. I mean, the electors 
run uh, as pledged uh, as pledged to a particular presidential candidate. They're party loyalists. They're chosen for their loyalty. And in 48 states, whoever gets the most votes in the states gets all the loyal pledged electors from that state. So it's important for everyone listening to know that the Electoral College today does not work at all the way it was intended back in 1787. But doesn't, I mean, aren't there advantages of it in that it gives us a, a clear, decisive winner? Meaning, even though you've got uh, 51, 51%, say, to 48% for Trump right, or for Biden right now, if you look at the 290 to 214, that's pretty decisive. Yeah, it's pretty decisive. Some people also point to the 1960 presidential election where the national popular vote between Kennedy and Nixon was extremely close uh, and, and disputed, but Kennedy won more clearly in the Electoral College. The problem with the, I think, with the Electoral College, there's two big problems. Number one is you may have a national vote that's clear, but a, a very close election in one state, which causes a national crisis, which is exactly what happened with Florida in 2000. And the, the national popular vote was clear that Gore won. The other problem, of course, with the Electoral College in modern times is you end up with these situations where Americans choose one candidate nationwide and a different candidate wins because of the uh, idiosyncrasies of the Electoral College with its winner-take-all rules for most states. Uh, that causes some problems with legitimacy uh, of a winning presidential candidate. It's, it's a problem you do not get in other countries around the world. There is no other country in the world that chooses its head of government through such a system. Uh, and so I guess, you know, there are problems with it, even even if it maybe has some advantages in some ways. Well, I will tell you, my friend, my overseas friends, uh, as you know, I, I spent time as a Fulbright scholar in the Czech Republic. They've been emailing me and saying, what does this mean? <laughs> and I told them it really does mean uh, probably what you see in the press here, but but hold tight. So it is clearly something that is foreign to the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I sometimes take a group of our Penn State students to Toronto to teach them in a Canadian classroom with Canadian students, and the Canadians are mostly baffled why we have an electoral college system to choose a president. And as I explain how it works, they just become more and more confused why Americans use that system. Well, and it made sense, too, as well, maybe when it took time for the votes to come in and the like. But, you know, one of the things that when you look at it that strikes me is some states actually get a, even a larger percentage than they deserve based on their population. Wyoming, I think it has three electoral votes, but if you took the percentage of their population and you looked at the 500 plus electoral college votes that are out there, I think it exceeds it. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Because the number of electoral votes in each state is based on its number of members of Congress, uh, every state automatically gets at least two electoral votes because of its two senators. And then, of course, at least one more electoral vote, depending how many House members it gets. I've actually looked into this, and in about 28 states, over half the states, actually get a higher percentage of electoral votes than their share of the national population. Well, of course, larger states like California, New York, Pennsylvania, Texas, get a lower share of electoral votes than their share of the population. Uh, you get people arguing that this is a good thing, but but I would question that, I guess. So, the you know... The the, uh, the alternative is to have the direct national vote. But are there problems with that? I mean, would we still be waiting for weeks for the votes to come in? Uh, would it disenfranchise people in smaller states? I mean, why don't we just switch over, other than the fact that it's, of course, constitutionally <laughs> mandated, and that takes a lot of work to undo. But there are people who argue the other way very passionately. 
Yeah, I, I mean, there, you, you raised a couple issues there as, as far as switching to a national popular vote. I mean, I, and this election with Biden leading by over five million, I don't think there would be any delays in declaring a winner. It would be kind of obvious by now there are not enough votes left to count. Uh, I, I do see some problems with someone winning a national election with maybe 45, 43 percent of the vote just because they finished first, uh, which we would have had uh, four years ago when Hillary Clinton finished first with 48 percent of the vote. Uh, I would prefer some kind of runoff system like France actually uses for presidential elections, but we would need to amend the Constitution to do that. Uh, but, you know, and then as far as I, I don't know if you want me to continue at this point, but as far as, you know, states like Wyoming, I mean, people have this idea that somehow the Electoral College benefits rural areas. And, and I've studied this and statistically studied this. It's just not true. I mean, in this past campaign, we never saw Donald Trump or Mike Pence or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris visit Wyoming or visit Montana or visit Idaho or visit North Dakota or visit Kansas or visit Vermont or visit Alaska. Uh, they never visit any of these rural states. Uh, the rural states were completely ignored in the presidential election because they don't have a lot of people and everyone knew who was going to win them. Uh, even in Pennsylvania, when Donald Trump or Joe Biden would come to Pennsylvania, they would go to cities. Uh, for better or for worse, they didn't campaign in rural areas. There's not enough votes there. So, I, I mean, I feel fairly strongly that the idea that somehow the Electoral College benefits rural areas is just a complete myth uh, that unfortunately has been perpetuated a lot in the past four years. Yeah, it, uh, it, uh, it certainly benefits areas like Erie, Pennsylvania, where we're at, where they always show up because we're just so critical to it. But to your point, uh, they would have to change behavior perhaps and start – every vote would then really count. So it would at least be worth a a stop in, say, Wyoming or Montana, uh, at least once in the campaign. And right now it happens zero times ever. They're never really included in in the process. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in the national popular vote, yes, of course, you know, California, New York, Texas and Florida and Pennsylvania might get the most visits. uh, But it'd be worth a candidate's time to go to Oklahoma City and to Little Rock and to Boise, Idaho and to Salt Lake City, maybe even Anchorage, Alaska, Honolulu, Hawaii, because every vote would count. Uh, even if you know you're not going to win the state as a whole, that becomes irrelevant with the national popular vote. You want to win every vote you can. And right now, for instance, candidates spend no time at all in California or New York, uh, two of our three largest states, because everyone knows they're going to vote Democrat. Uh, if we had a national popular vote, you actually would have seen Donald Trump go to California, New York, and win every vote he possibly could in those two states. Well, I know we're spending a bit of time on this, but uh, I think it's important to understand. The other thing that strikes me, too, is uh, we didn't have this idea of red and blue states and have it so much part of our vernacular uh, 20, more, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And this now divides us, the Electoral College, into thinking that way. Does it not? You know, you're a red state, you're a blue state. And, and I don't think we have to have that sort of thinking. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, you know, people look at the map of the Electoral College after each election. And, and, you know, if you're from Oklahoma or you're from Arkansas or you're from Kentucky, you're from a different world than someone from Massachusetts or New York or California or Washington State. Uh, we're divided that way. There are plenty of Republicans in California and New York. There are plenty of Democrats in Oklahoma and Arkansas and Tennessee. And the Electoral College just makes all those people not count at all. Uh, we can see what happens when they do count because they, they matter in congressional elections. And the congressional election results this year had something of a different uh, outcome than the presidential election. All right. I've got one more electoral college question. And I, sure. I go back to Pennsylvania. So, you know, let me feed the uh, or try to head off any conspiracy theories here. But Pennsylvania is in the national spotlight. If it were to flip, 
that would be a big differential. But couldn't the state legislature, in theory, actually uh, overturn the popular vote anyways? Is this possible that the, the, the legislature could say, no, you have to vote Republican? It, it's not clear what would happen. Uh, I mean, the U.S. Constitution said that state legislatures uh, determine how their electors are assigned. Uh, but the state of Pennsylvania has a law saying the electors are chosen by voters as a group in the November election. Uh, for the state legislature to change that after an election would be tricky, in, in part because if they passed a law doing it, uh, Governor Wolf, a Democrat, would have to sign, and he would not sign that. Okay. Uh, and even if the Republicans in the Pennsylvania General Assembly in Harrisburg somehow sent some sort of electors to Washington uh, or some sort of electors to the Electoral College in Harrisburg in December, who then cast electoral votes that went to Washington to be counted by Congress in January, uh, the Constitution also says that the House and Senate uh, in a joint session count the electoral votes officially in January. And you can guarantee that the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives would dispute uh, Republican electoral votes from Pennsylvania in such a case. Uh, and we, the Senate would be unclear at this point, but we, it would basically lead to a constitutional crisis. I strongly doubt that our General Assembly in Harrisburg would try something like that. Okay. Well, let's uh, go back to the current election and the the outcome uh, or some of the things that have come out of it. You know, everyone had assumed or the analysts, I don't know if everyone, that uh, with a more diverse America, uh, with a greater uh, proportion of minority voters, that uh, it would favor the Democratic Party uh, in this election and in decades to come. And I've heard that argument for a while, but it, it's not clear that that's what happened when you look at the outcome of the House and the Senate races. So do you, what's this mean? Do we have to think about it differently? I, I would say just after this one election, probably not. Uh, we did still get almost 90% of African Americans favoring the Democrats, favoring Joe Biden. We did get about two-thirds of Latino and Latino Americans and two-thirds of Asian Americans favoring Joe Biden. Uh, it may have been a slightly lower margin than favored Hillary Clinton four years ago, but it was not a dramatic shift. Uh, you still got Donald Trump winning a majority of white Americans. Uh, so I, I believe those racial divisions still exist. And, and the percentage of non-white Americans, as we know, is growing uh, among the electorate. And if Republicans don't put more effort into appealing to such types of voters, uh, they're running into trouble in the future. Everyone... California flipped in the 1990s. California actually used to be a very solidly Republican state in presidential elections. And as more and more Latino Americans began to vote in California, it flipped to the Democrats. Uh, then we got New Mexico flipping, and then we got Colorado flipping, and then we got Nevada flipping. And then in this year, it appears Arizona has flipped uh, due to uh, anger among non-white Americans at the Republican Party. And everyone is just waiting until Texas flips. Uh, because once Texas flips, and if Democrats can start winning in Texas, uh, Republicans will lose all hope at the Electoral College. So most Republicans who follow these issues know that the Republicans have to do a better job at reaching out to non-white voters. And I don't think a slight improvement in this election uh, represents a long-term trend. We have to watch and see. But I do think that there is uh, there is evidence, though, that we, we've got to look people in general, I mean politicians left and right, let me let me say it that way, have to look perhaps differently at how they appeal and, and the minority vote is not a monolith. Yes, I, I definitely agree with that. And that's another actually argument for having a national popular vote to choose a president, because instead of looking at uh, various you know racial and ethnic communities as, as being dominant in a state, you look for every vote you can get. 
I mean, every vote you can get from anywhere in the country among any community counts uh, if we elect president by a national popular vote, the same way like members of Congress. Uh, the Electoral College actually interferes with that and causes presidential candidates to see people as fitting in a particular target group uh, that they're reaching to just win a particular state. Now, when we look at this election, and obviously we, we haven't talked much about the coronavirus, but it changed our habits and our, our approach to voting in that so many more people voted by mail-in ballots and uh, voted in, in advance. Is this going to be a long-term shift? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, and, and several states before this year, people th- there were a few states, uh, Colorado, Washington State, and Oregon, which had already abolished polling places and just sent mail ballots to all registered voters. I mean, that was the way everyone voted. And then there were uh, uh, Utah and Hawaii were also supposed to start doing that this year anyway. And then there were some other states, California, Arizona, and Montana, or three of them, where voters could choose whether to vote by mail for any reason or to vote in person. Uh, and in those three states and other states that allowed it, most voters had already chosen to vote by mail in every election. Californians, most voters have been voting by mail for about a decade now, and they did that by choice. Uh, so I think even once the pandemic is over, even once COVID-19 may not be as much of a concern, uh, I believe most Pennsylvanians and most Americans in states where it's allowed will continue to choose to vote by mail ballot. Well, that is, I think, a, a great way to end because uh, we have a strong country. Uh, regardless of your political leanings, uh, we have survived a lot and we will survive well into the future. So I think that's great advice to end on. Thank you, Chancellor. Thank you for joining us, Rob. You take care. You too.